Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, I don't care about life after it. I'm, I'm worried about having a life before that. You know, I just want to live life, you know, but um, doing what I do, I feel like I'm part of something. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Seamus McGoldrick. Seamus is an Irish big wave surfing legend. He's a bodyboarder, surfer and surf coach. Seamus goes into detail on how he got to where he is now, so I'll spare the details in this introduction. But what I will say is that Seamus is part of the crew that went on to define Irish big wave surfing. He was one of the early pioneers, seeking out and sometimes stumbling on some of the biggest waves in the world, breaking where the Atlantic meets the land for the first time in thousands of miles on the rocky, rugged coastline of Ireland. This conversation spans many things and is very fluid and informal. We cover a huge variety of topics, with both of us regularly derailing one another as we natter away, almost as if we were sat in the pub or by a fire on a beach somewhere. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. The same as us, they're big believers in story over hype, and their written words and incredible images have been a huge inspiration for me over the years. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Seamus McGoldrick. So I think the, the obvious logical place to start is maybe you could just introduce yourself, tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. So my name is Seamus. I, I'm from Strand Hill in County Sligo. Um, I, um, that's, that's kind of where I grew up and it's where I'm currently living now. Yeah, I, I, you know, I got into bodyboarding at about the age of 10 when I was still in primary school in my village. And there was... Um, it's funny how I got into it because I used to just go to this woman for um, after school. Like my parents worked until six and I had a couple hours to kill. And I was at this child miners and her, her son surfed. One guy was a surfer, one guy was a bodyboarder. And I would look at the bodyboard videos and the surf videos. And like the bodyboard videos were super underground, like places like YMA, Bay, Shorebrick, Pipeline, Shark Island. And when I was watching that, I was just like, mom, I want to get a bodyboard mom and dad i want a bodyboard for christmas and that was it F fell into a few friends and 
there was a good crew of bodyboarders and surfers back in the mid nineties in Stranhill, and you know the beaches changed out the coastal erosion, but there was a lot, a lot of good banks, and then got into a few competitions and to the surf club, and just they were great, great days growing up, learning to bodyboard, um, but then kind of slowly, kind of realizing there was more out there. Um, cause it's still pretty adventurous when you're a kid, like going out surfing your own beach on your own, you know, there was no real supervision. My parents were very supportive, but they, they didn't know anything about surfing. Um, but, um, you know, I used to read all the English magazines like Carve and 360 bodyboarding magazine. And I would kind of think England, oh, had so much ways. You have these piers where the waves would come and smash up the piers, all these wedges. I was like, oh man, England's the place to go. It's like so pumping and super jealous, you know? Because the English bodyboarders, anyways, were at a very high level. They've been to Hawaii and, you know, but then it was kind of like rumors, you know, there was stories being told about waves here and waves there. And you slowly kind of start to go, like, we were taking buses. Um, one story I really remember was like, on a, no, we weren't on the bus. We were, my dad, like, I would have went in and woke my dad up. You know, he's worked all week. He went out for a few pints on the Friday. Uh, play a game of cards and then I'm up waking him up going dada we gotta bring me up to a competition in Rosnala which is about an hour from my house it's like a beach break which is very soft and it's very like you know bodyboard longboard all this kind of heats ladies and uh, we're driving up to this competition with a couple of my buddies from Strand Hill for the under 16 bodyboard event or whatever it was and we passed in through Bundoran and we in traffic, we looked at the peak, it's like six foot, we looked for four to six foot offshore pumping barrels that we'd never seen before. And we're just like, Dad, stop the car, stop the car. And he's like, What, what, what are you on about? It's like, We're getting out here, we're getting out here, we're gonna go surf. Dad goes, What about the competition? We're like, Who cares? Like, so, and you know, my dad, like, didn't have a clue. He's like, Oh, yeah, fair enough. Sure, look, you can get the bus home. He just pulls in, lets us out. He's happy out, he gets to go home. And we paddle out of the peak. Well, one of the guys didn't paddle out. One of the guy, other guys stayed in the shoulder. Um, when we paddled out, I realized it was like the biggest surf I'd ever been in. <laughs> uh, I remember seeing some like French longboarder getting a barrel at the right, like stand up barrel on a longboard. And I was just like absolutely crapping myself. And um, maybe try to catch one or two waves, got like one of the wipeouts of my life. And that was it, you know. And that was 10 times what the competition would have given you in terms of experience. Um, so there's they were the kind of things. I have a lot of stories just from, you know, being a teenager, growing up, doing competitions. Got to school, um, had a, you know, secondary school was kind of probably easier to deal with because I had my sport, I had, had all that kind of crew. I got involved in competitions. I went to some European championships and then went to college. I went to college in Dublin, which was on the east coast of Ireland. And I went to the world championships as well. Um, so it was a very exciting time. And that was when I started to move away from competitions though um which were held at a fixed date usually on beach breaks generally in ways which weren't conductive to bodyboarding um because although like you know there wasn't much anonymity between bodyboard and surfing there was a big differences in the surf business versus the bodyboard business um and you know it, it, it's a great success as a miracle that surfing hit the mainstream along with skate and snow in in the late 90s early 2000s um but bodyboarding has kind of stayed quite underground but um, it was just that shift away from competitions, competing, you know, because if I'd had a, you know, English lad in a heat, it was like, you know, this guy's going down, like, you know, no ways, you know, this English guy going to beat us Irish teams. But, you know, we'd be down after pints then with the Welsh and, you know, there was that, because we couldn't speak French or Spanish, but it was, you know, you'd really want to be, even the English then and the Irish would be like, well, let's speak the Spanish and the French, you know. 
um, which is good fun. It's good, like it's like international football and all that. But you know, then you have to realize, like, I come back from the World Championships and then I'm meeting up with guys from Cornwall, like Mickey Smith and Jack Johns and Dan, and you know, we're all heading out bodyboarding together, and it's not like it's a heat, and you know, who's going to get? It was all like super fun, laughing our heads off. The competition was who could go in the craziest wave, who could catch the biggest wave, who could go deepest, who could get the biggest air. And, you know, if I saw Jack getting there, like, you know, I wanted to go get one and it was just pushing it. And also the way it worked, there was only four of us in the water. So everyone knew who was going next, you know. Um, and then when it was your go, you didn't want to pull back in that wave and waste that wave. So um, that's very different to being out in a tiny beach break with 100 people trying to practice for the competition, you know. There's an element which helps, you know, the, the competition helped me kind of really get into the nitty gritty of my maneuvers and, and, and you know, make me be able to go left and right in a wave equally. Um, so that was kind of it, Matt. Um, I left college after that and I was busy studying, um, studied science, uh, which I really loved. But like, you know, at the same time, whenever I had free time, I was going like discovering ways like the Clissamore and Riley's and Bumbloids and crazy waves with crazy people um and so that leaves a mark on a young guy i was only 21 when i finished college so i went to indonesia and when i came back then i took a complete uh, left turn in my life i went and studied music uh, i did a, a year in a recording studio i learned to play guitar and then i started studying irish traditional music and folklore so i started learning to, like learn traditional instruments like i used to play the timbers when i was a kid like every kid played in ireland it's like playing the triangle in you know in the band um but then kind of banjo and met, uh, kind of moved away from the coast and stuff, um, but got a car. So I learned to drive. So it wasn't that I needed to be at the beach. Um, and then I came back to Strand Hill and through a couple of strokes of good fortune, I, one of my previous coaches in the Irish surf team, Pascal Devine, who's this kind of quite legendary um Surf coach, judge, surfing judge, very high level surfing judge, uh, who set up a surf school. And the surf school was called I Surf Ireland. And it was kind of, it wasn't just your run in the mill surf school. He was he, he was a teacher and he, he worked in prisons and stuff. So it was more him putting his years of experience as an Irish coach and as an Irish judge um, into a surf school. And I was like all over, worked with him for a while. And when he emigrated to the Middle East, he I inherited the surf school basically. And then I eventually set up my own own business on the back of that, and and now I, I that's that's basically up to the present day. Amazing, but I think it's it's just super interesting. And I don't know, you know, people will have different levels of experience who are listening to this and understand surf in different ways. And whether you know, it, it's similar to climate in many ways. Like we know that there are these established spots, which is where people go surfing or climbing, and. And then there's the competition side of it, and that's one thing. It's no right or wrong. It's just horses for courses. But I suspect that not many people know, or lots of people don't know, that you know when you were growing up, there were whole places, whole waves down the West Coast that just hadn't been discovered, in inverted commas. Like, people had looked at them before, sure, but had they looked at them through the eyes of a surfer or a bodyboarder? Well, what's ironic is that like uh, the Irish surfing revolution was kind of spearheaded by... Um, Cornish people uh, and British people, um, I think, and like that's no disrespect to the Irish crew, but um, there's quite a healthy bodyboarding. Um, because bodyboarding is quite a new sport, it was only invented in the 70s when we came to Ireland late. 
and um, you see a big crew of body workers was in Northern Ireland in Port Rush and those northern um, points and beaches and it was quite established surf scene with the guy in Trogs, um, Andy Hill, complete legend, his dad um, uh, brought the first bodyboard to Ireland and stuff like that. So um, the Cornish guys and the English guys have been done a few trips to Hawaii, which is like pressure cooker stuff. And, you know, they had, had kind of sponsors and they had like photographers and magazines and stuff. So they kind of had a lot of experience, which they kind of turned on their nearest neighbor and they kind of came over with definitely body words of different perspective on a surf spot. Um so, but yeah, the, the discovery of waves, I think that's maybe the most amazing thing we could talk about because uh, it is called an adventure. And you were, we were talking before we came on about adventure. And I, I, like for me, the definition of adventure is it's not an adventure until something goes wrong, you know, uh, and it's easy to mythologize it. And it's definitely been so in the media. And it's, it is, let's not sad. Let's not say it's sad. It's completely predictable how surfing has been packaged to the media with this little neat bow and it. it's just, you know, I mean, I woke up this morning to the very, very, very sad news about um, a Brazilian surfer drowned at uh, Nazare today, which is, uh, you know, to be cold about it. Well, I shouldn't be cold because it's such a sad event, but it was almost inevitable what those guys were doing. Um, but um, maybe a lot of people don't know that another bodyboarder died just before Christmas at a wave I've gone to for the last 10 years called El Fronton in Gran Canaria. Um, he died after, you know, an air went wrong and he hit his head off the rocks. And so that's us two people passed away there in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I, I couldn't even imagine if we got into your, you know, list of contacts, how many people have seriously had life altering accidents. Um, and I think that's so, you know, that's just that's just part of it. Like, and I, I think there's then there's that ethical debate. You know, I went from being a shit scared 17 year old kid wanting to pop into a four foot barrel at the peak or, you know, with Jack at six foot waves, eight foot waves. And you're like, this is great, you know, and then you survive and you go and you go and you go till you get to a point where like, you know, is this ethically correct? And, you know, people are like, you're crazy going out there, but you're not going out to harm yourself or to injure yourself. If it wasn't dangerous, it wouldn't be any fun. But um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's pretty hectic. Yeah, it is. And what was it in you that, I mean, you've said, you know, the story about, your dad driving you out and you just stopping and staying and going somewhere new. But what was it in you that wanted the adventure and the search for new places rather than going to the competitions and being world famous and, you know, the Kelly Slater of bodyboarding? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Um, the short answer is I wasn't that good at competitions. I kept getting last in the heats or um, second was my good. Second and third was my position. Second is losers first place. But it's, no, it's a really good question, and I actually have a good way of answering it. So it's it's like when you're you're in a, cr a court of law, and you're it's a crime, you know, it's a crime of opportunity, you know. If you steal ten thousand bucks, you know you're going down. But if you're like walking past an unlocked door and you look in, you see a sack of money there, and you go, "Well, look," you know, it's just asking me to take it, and you head off. That's a crime of opportunity, right? And you're, you're if you have a clever law lawyer, you know, you're going to get two years or whatever. So for me, people have often said, oh, you're crazy, whatever. And that's fair enough. I understand. But for me, it's like I've looked at these waves for years, 10 years before, like I used to drive up when I was younger and go to Mullock Moor and 
just watch, you know, and slowly you kind of realize like, and you see other people out there and like, you know, I, I you know, I won't lie. Like there, there, you see English guys out there, you see French guys out there. There is that little bit of national competitiveness, you know, I think it's very, very healthy, you know, it goes to other extremes of war and other stuff, you know, which is super unhealthy, but like, you know, if, especially in surfing, I don't know, in snow or other sports, when, when you go to these international events, it was good crack and that kind of comp competition there's a really helpful amount of it, which which helps people excel. You know, I saw these guys out there. I was like, no, man, I don't want those guys. I want to be out there myself, you know, um, and that kind of thing. And even between your friends. So it was just hearing it, hearing the stories. Um, it just makes you just want to be there. And then, of course, it was a very incremental step up. So once you surf a four foot wave, and get wiped out and survive on surf six foot one and then it's an eight foot one and then ten foot one and so on and it's like an addiction you know and addiction's got a bad name there's good addictions there's bad addictions you know my addiction to surfing in the ocean is a, is a very very powerful and healthy addiction for me um but an addiction nonetheless and you get withdrawal symptoms when you don't get you know the waves and stuff and it can be very fickle over here um but it was a very much a stepping stone and of course it's like a drugs is a very very good um Simulate your metaphor because you build up tolerance, you know, you build up tolerance. So sometimes six foot waves, they just don't do it for you anymore. You want to get that hit again, over again, and you go to a bigger wave. But the thing for, especially for listeners who aren't surfers, or even if they are, what you may not understand is that a 10 foot wave, you know, wave height is kind of subjective and there's a lot, you know, goes on. But what you need to understand is that a 10 foot wave isn't just double the size of a five foot wave. It's four times the size because you're talking about volume. And similarly, a 20-foot wave isn't just twice as big as a 10-foot wave. It's four times as big. Um, so, you know, the big waves are, they're all inspiring Like, they really, really are all inspiring And it brings surfing down to a real, you know, um, pure level. You know, it strips back all, all the kind of bullshit, um, which is what it's kind of about. Um, it's about... I always think adventures and surfing from my point of view is about self-development and it's not about being a good surfer, it's about being, being a good person, you know, sharing waves and, and, and just getting into the whole stoke. Um, so that's kind of how, how I got drawn into it. And like, you know, I am a bodyboarder, I'm a hardcore bodyboarder, but I grew up loving surfing and all the history from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, I think each adventure sport like climbing and snow and skate all have that same heritage which I can't comment on, but I am a little bit of um, a nerd on, on surf history and bodyboard history. But what is it for you, you know, when you talk about surfing versus bodyboarding, and I think it's kind of that whole, you've got ski versus snowboarding, rollerblading versus skateboarding. I guess it's more like the rollerblading versus skateboarding thing where it's not seen as quite as cool, is it? And I, I use that word very specifically. Like, what is yeah. it for you about bodyboarding that trumps surfing? Well, it doesn't trump surfing. It doesn't trump surfing at all. Um, like I do surf as well. And it's, you know, more and more and more, you're starting to see like um, the most celebrated surfers in the world are really watermen. You know, Kai Lenny is a good example. Um, doing surf, surfing longboards, shortboards, twin fins, single fins, foils. You know, um, you see a lot of the surf, a lot of bodyboarders going to surfing or water photography. You don't see too many surfers trying to, trying to bodyboard because bodyboarding is quite hard. Um, the learning curves of surfing and bodyboarding are very different. But to answer your question, I don't really know. I used to watch bodyboard videos and surf videos next to each other before I surfed. 
So I would look at an 80s, 90s body uh, surfing film. It might have been very arty, black and white, you know, music, but it was all way over my head because I was only 10 or nine. Um, and they'd be at Indonesia and they'd be doing like all these like turns and stuff. And it might have been, I, I'd love it now. But back then, after, you know, watching them on repeat daily, so there's only two or three videos, I kind of get bored of surfing ones because it was just, you know, generally smaller waves. If it was bigger waves, okay, it was pretty intense. But I would see the same waves as Pipeline on the bodyboard things. And they were doing massive airs, which, you know, in the 90s, guys weren't doing airs yet. And they were surfing waves like Shark Island, which would break over dry rock and you would see the craziest wipeouts and the surf films like would have been you know billabong blah 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 blah. but like the bodyboard films some of the footage had timestamps on them from like home videos so super underground and there's all this like stupid outtakes and stuff and like real punk garage music like real hardcore aussie punk so that just you know that just sealed the deal and um i was fairly focus on bodyboarding um and there is this kind of surfer bodyboarder that kind of harks back to kind of maybe a bit of a commercial thing there's you know there's definitely skiing snowboarding i always say like it's not a one doesn't trump the other they're just different styles it's like taekwondo and kung fu like you know you can still kick someone's ass but just two different ways or if you're skiing and snowboarding you're still going down a mountain real fast just doing it two different ways um but just naturally on a bodyboard you're prone your center of gravity is lower you can kind of survive more crazy drops. Um, but it's really cool that see surfers who need to be way more precise and it's more like fucking almost like Zen warrior doing like touch of death, just complete, like just have to get it right one time, super Zen type of thing to do. Um, seeing them push over into like the create, that's one thing I could talk to the rest of the podcast about watching the highest trained, craziest surfers going on the most critical waves where they're just like vertical getting to their feet and i'm pulling back in a bodyboard thinking i'm gonna die and these guys are going deeper and have to do a pop-up and still sticking it like sometimes um so as a bodyboarder being here i've actually been able to witness some crazy surfing and actually surfing being the level actually being pushed harder than it's ever been pushed before i mean it's pretty crazy when you hear a guy like nathan florence who came over last month and we surfed Mullet Moore together and he went on this crazy wave. I remember being out there going, yelling at him, go, 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 go. And he got a backhand barrel that I made Joao filmed. And uh, he, I don't know, on social media, he was kind of claiming one of the best barrels of his life. And it's just kind of like, wow, you know, that, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, so I can't remember what your original question was. I was kind of babbling there. But um, I think the thing about what the big wave surfing was, as I got into bigger waves, we were like, the reason you weren't surfing it before because you were shit scared, you were young, you're like, you were maybe less strong in the water, you're like, this wave's going to kill me. And then you surf these crazy waves and then like all, all goes wrong and the worst case scenario happens and you survive or you just have a small little cut in your foot or something and you're like, I can do this, you know, and then you go out to the big waves like, fuck, you know, um, this isn't going to kill me so you can kind of get away with things. But again, I think like, you know, we're not just speaking to a hardcore you know, surfing audience here. Like, I don't know how many people know that the West Coast of Ireland is a world-class venue. And I think it would be maybe, you know, you clearly do have like lots of knowledge about this place through personal experience, but also research and background and just living it. Like, when did that happen? 
and why is it world class and what is it that makes it special and unique? Yeah, well, um, blind luck. I mean, you know, you can't talk about fade or whatever, but um, I, I, the place I grew up in is amazing for waves. And as a surfer, it's kind of a lucky thing to be like, wow, you know, even to go and travel and go, look, I've traveled, but I, I think home is as good as anywhere I've been to, um, maybe just a few degrees colder. And I run a surf school, so, you know, um, and a lot of my customers, the majority of my customers are people in their 20s, 30s, even 40s and 50s who try surfing and then maybe want to pursue it and learn it. And um, I deal a lot with people in their 20s who are trying to try and learn surfing and get over the hump. And, you know, I have intermediate surfing courses and all that. And as much as the technique, it's really like, Mr. Moore, you can do, you can. And I always kind of joke with them then, like, look, when I learned to surf or when I learned to bodyboard, you know, over those couple of summers, you know, being in the water all the time, I was young. I didn't have a girlfriend, didn't have a mortgage, didn't have kids. You know, all I had to do was go home and do my homework and I could jump in the sea and get my 10,000 hours in, you know. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of lucky in, in that sense. Um, but when I was growing up, we had my beach break here in Strand Hill. There was E-Ski was well known. There's a couple of reef breaks up there. Um, there was actually a kind of a crew of a lot of English people. I don't know what part of England, um, but they were kind of, I guess, maybe hippies, maybe like tax exiles who were living in vans. And they were like known as this black wetsuit brigade. Even when the guys from Bundoran would come down, they would get hassled from like, you know, these um, Eastky locals, but lots of them were, were, they weren't even from there, but they were kind of living there. Um, and that kind of, they all got moved on in the 90s, late 90s, 2000s. But was, that's, that's kind of what surfing was. Like, you know, that that guy, um, Mickey Dora, who was the famous Malibu surfer of the 50s, he eventually arrived in Ireland in the 80s and 90s, uh, escaping tax and the FBI and all that. So, the, you know, the, there's these like historical little tidbits that are, were fascinating to learn. But, um, yeah, traveling away. See, I live in Sligo. Kind of Sligo is a coastal county. And then out to the west, you have Eastkey. And then up to the north, you've got Bundoran. So you're kind of in the middle of this like right angle triangle of swell. Um, and then down south, you you got good um, geology. So you got a lot of limestone for good for beaches and points. And then you have down south, you got some good um, ways in Kerry, Clare, Cork. So if you look at the west coast of Ireland, it's very, you know, destroyed and like pummeled by the west coast but if you look at the east coast of Ireland it's quite straight and it's not as you know so you you get all the surf on on, on the west coast um but when we were going up we had the established spots like down in Clare you had like Crab Island and then you had La Hinch and you had Doonbeg but because I fell into a kind of a group of bodyboards we're looking for slightly different ways and there were, were places but we started looking in between the places which were known and sure enough we found not me personally, um, but like other people. And, uh, you know, so that was pretty, so we didn't really know what we had in 2000, but by 2010, you know, we basically realized the best surf in Europe was here. And then on its day, like it was like some of the best surf in the world. And then a big part of that was Fergal Smith. My, my good friend Fergal um, was one of the first, one of the most successful um Irish pro surfers. He was a couple of years younger than I was, um, but he charged way harder eventually and, and pushed the boundaries way, way more than I did. Mainly thanks to his partnership with Tom Lowe and Mickey Smith, some hellmen from Cornwall. Um, 
and he ha- he he became like the most photographed surfer in the world, and sir, he got the cover of Surf Magazine, so that gained a lot of traction. And then people used to come over and and surf over here. So not only were you kind of hanging out with the local guys or, or the people who aren't from Ireland, like maybe a couple of French guys or a couple of Axie Mian, and you know there were there were we would call them regulars, you know, who'd been home for years and there were you know the established friendships and stuff like that. Uh, but then you had like other people like, you know, Shane Dorian come over and you had these big pros and that was really cool because, you know, they're, they're a good crack and um, you'd learn a lot from them and it was kind of honor to surf with them. So, yeah, it's, it was that evolution from 2000, 2010 where a lot of things changed. And now it's at another level, I, I guess, now where you've got Conor Maguire and Garage McDade. So um, I think uh, one of the things I'm most interested in, and this is personal, is like what's that process you know you stood on the cliff top you've stopped the car and you just look over the edge and go holy shit look at it that's potentially world class you know what happens next how do you actually get in and get it done and work out what's going on because it's not i mean safe is not the word i'd use right no um yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, I mean, any wave on the west coast of Ireland, there's three main, main things that you need to know if you want to go surf there. Uh, one is the tide the wave works at. The second is the wind direction the wave works at. And then the third is the swell, like the swell height and swell direction. Like some some waves only need a one meter swell, some, meter, some waves need a 10 meter swell. And you get from one to 10 meter swells. I mean, you know, I look, the, 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 record for wave height in near Donegal on the N6 boy is 26 meters. 26 meters. My mom checked that, but I, I was on a, a podcast before and my friends runs a podcast for Met Aaron, which is um, the Irish kind of meteorological weather forecast, basically to do the, the news weather reports. And they had this woman who basically had a PhD in waves and um, like there's some crazy, like, you know, freak waves have been recorded off some boys, like, which is, just the North Atlantic isn't the biggest ocean, but the North Atlantic, it's because it's kind of small. It's like if you have a small bathtub, it's like it's all bouncing around there. It's a very, uh, it's one of the most active oceans. Um, and the only problem is when you're looking for big, big waves, the big, big low pressures, which form those big waves, ideally you want them far away from the country. And then the waves are kind of more clean, but generally what happens is they come close to the country. So, you get the waves, we also get the weather and the wind associated with it. Um, so each wave we've discovered has kind of been a bit different. I mean, there's waves that have been discovered that I was like, I'm not going there. <laughs> no way. Maybe because my equipment's not suitable or because it's too big or too dangerous. Um, another reason could be you have an idea. There's a, a really good surf spot somewhere. But if near a surf spot, you know, well, and that's really good as well. So it's like on, on the day that the, you know, mystery spot could be good. Like maybe, you know, you have to sacrifice a pumping day at this spot, you know, very well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard. And a point I would like to make is, and for anyone who's been over here who knows this very well, um, surf media and, you know, surfing covers and films. You know, it's all just, you take loads of photos, take loads of video, and you just cut the best bits. You just put the highlights together, and it looks like it's great all the time. 
but just not the case. Like for every one session you get that gets a photo in a magazine or something, there's 10 that have been, you know, could be failure. But um, yeah, like well, I'm happy to go deeper into that question about what, what do you do? But is your question about like, what do you do when you get to a spot when it's really big or what, what do you do when you're, when you're a completely virgin kind of exploration kind of thing? I think the most romantic part of all of this for me is like, you know, I'm very much an armchair surfer, East Coast based, never get out, you know, as much as I'd like to is, I assume it's best in the winter. It's cold. People are wearing hoods and gloves. It's fierce. It's dangerous. I, I suppose what I'm interested in is what's it actually like to get into waves of that scale? Because these are, correct me if I'm wrong, some of the biggest waves in the world. They're not, you know, yeah. they're not holiday waves and you're not surfing it in 25 degrees. No, the cold is, is well, there's no getting rid of it. And it's something I've been familiar with since I was 12 years old, surfing through all the way through the winter, you know, getting bad sinus problems and stuff like that. So, yeah, the cold absolutely sucks. Um, that doesn't mean you can't get waves in the six months of good weather here in Ireland, but, you know, you're generally, there's more low pressures and more big storms in the winter. Um, so, look, we're just picking it. It's kind of more easier. So, like, Mullockmore is a wave that, you know, it's not hard to find. It's on the maps. Mullockmore Head is this um, headland in the north of Sligo that just has survived the battering the coast has given. There's a ferry rock there that has a castle built on it called um, Cassie Bawn, um, and it was owned by uh, Lord Mountbatten, who who was the last Viceroy of India, and he led the Allied Command in 1945 and all that. Although, if you look into the, you know, some people claim he's quite inept. Um, you know, he kind of might have been this very quite upper class dude who was just like in the job because he was upper class. Um, but like I'm not, I'm not a military historian, he was assassinated in, in 79 by the IRA, um, which is ironic because he was actually, he um, he thought Irish independence was a good idea, but it was kind of a political assassination. Um, so Mullock Moore, is, it, it, it's been on the map for a while. And the wave there, I was watching it for years. I've seen people tow. And then one day we got out there and had a go. Um, one of our biggest uh, inspirations was Eastkey Britain. Eastkey and her um, cousin, who um, runs Finn McCool, Neil Britton runs Finn McCool Surf School in Rossnala. Um, they were a tow team and uh, like, you know, Eastkey had done amazing things in competitions, but she and she's well used to big waves and she was on there with her her um, cousin towing some crazy waves and, you know, essentially myself and my buddy Shane said, look, if Eastkey can do it, we can do it. And uh, she's, she really inspired us to take the thumb out and, and get out there and the first time we told it you know it all went wrong we had two really bad wipeouts and that was really good so on a typical day like at Mullock Moor um to begin with a couple of years ago um it's just raw fear it's just raw fear and you know I can remember not sleeping the whole night before you know thinking what should you eat what should you know I'm not like a gym bunny I'm not like doing like marathons I'm not like I keep I do a bit of yoga, trying to eat well healthy, but it's just like just a fear factor to get out there and then once you're out there to catch a wave. Um, because when you're towing in, you just grab a rope and you get pulled into the wave. You you go, I want this wave, and you you kind of it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more like Russian roulette. Whereas when you, you even if you get the uh, I was gonna say balls, but like you know what I mean, like the 
whatever to get out there to actually catch a wave physically it's actually quite hard and then you might have actually pretty much caught a wave and then just the last minute you're mentally balk and you'll fall back and that's the scariest 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 thing because you've just got yourself into this i don't know berserker kind of a mentality where you've just you finally overridden everything and you're paddling into this wave and then the last minute maybe you look down especially at Mullock Moor because a lot of things can happen you might see a little wobble or a boil and you might just pull off and what happens then is you pu- you you pull back but you're still going forward a little bit and then the wave breaks and it's usually offshore so you get all the spray like hectic hectic spray because it's usually very very windy so you're sat there You've just been at where a breaking wave is pretty much pitching and breaking. You've been pulled forward a little bit and then you get all this spray and all this noise and you're looking around, you can't see shit for ages because all the spray is hitting you. But you know there's another wave coming. You know there's a foot, it could be like a bigger wave coming and you're in a really, really, really shit place now because if you turn around, you need to start paddling. <laughs> and you need to start paddling really hard because this is something, you know there's something behind you. It's like a, you know, when you're a child and you think there's like a boogeyman in the room, you can't see it. It's so just shit feeling, basically. Um, and then these waves are so big. When you when you duck dive, when you know you're on a beach break and you, just, you duck down the wave, it hits you, and then you come up the other side. With these waves, you, you, if a big wall of water is coming towards you and you duck dive into it, you're in the wave for ages and you don't know if, like, when you come up, if you're going to get sucked over or not. Um, and like those are moments of pure terror like I can't explain they're just pure terror we used to survive those episodes and then Mike Stewart like one of my mentors one of my guys I would have watched on these videos when I was 10 on these underground tapes and um, let me try and get this right because this is really instructional I think and it crosses all kind of divisions and all, all sports um, you can conquer fear through experience but you gain experience through action and action is regulated by fear. So it's this little triangle, you know? So if I go for this wave, my fear, it's not something to be scared. It's actually quite a useful little barometer. Something will twig and you, you'll pull back, okay? But you do that enough and, and a Mullock Moore, a good surfer Mullock Moore is basically someone who knows they're going on a wave that's going to close out. They know they're going to go on a wave they're not going to make, but they've just decided. They'll push over the ledge and just go with it and they're they're willing to take the, the beating um but then often if a person makes that wave that's the craziest wave ever so like a, a wave like mullock moore or a wave like aliens the ones that look like a closeout which is a wave which is going to break so fast you probably won't be able to make it are generally the most amazing waves you could get out there so there is this little bit of a suicide lemming thing where you got to be able to like basically like go on one that's not doesn't look like it's makeable and mentally that's quite hard but what's it like you know this question you'll get asked this all the time but what's it like to you know stack it and get sucked in and just get rolled around underwater you know how long are you down there what's it like what can you see yeah well that is the whole thing about it so yeah once you caught the wave actually surfing the wave to the shoulder is sweet it's not really that hard um 
And then, of course, on Mullock Moor, if you go out on a crazy day where you're like absolutely shitting it the night before, basically thinking like, look, you know, you know what the consequences are if things go really wrong. But you go out and you catch four ways and you don't wipe out. That's the best feeling. That gives you really, really good confidence, but lulls into such a false sense of security. And that's what happened with the jet ski towing thing where especially with the bodyboarding, we had like four foot waves, six foot waves, and we really did incremental steps up, which is really, that's the way to go about it. But when the jet skis came in, um, guys who would just surf six foot waves and they're just crazy, would just grab a rope and suddenly they'd be surfing 20 foot waves. And they might surf 20, 20 foot waves and not get wiped out. And then they're a big wave surfer. But like, you know, if they had, there's no jet skis available and you had to paddle, those guys mightn't, you know, be out there or probably definitely wouldn't. So it's kind of like, there's a good analogy there with like uh, martial arts and belts and stuff like that. You know, by the time you get your your black belt in karate, like, you know, now how how not to like just break someone's neck if they annoy you or something like that. You know, there's that whole thing with it. Um, So the way I'd approach your question is as a bodyboarder, you know, in my teens, watching bodyboard movies, bodyboarders are always looking for kind of heavier waves, more waves which are tubing, or break on more steeper banks, sandbanks, or more ledging shells or slabbier rocks. Um, and as a bodyboarder, you'd be regularly like looking for big closeouts. So you could pull into a big closeout and get the view of the barrel and then get washed out. Um, and we would just surf shore breaks the whole time. So getting a massive wipeout was part of the thrill. That was all part of the game. Um, and like surfing shore breaks in, in particular really gets you used to hectic situations. You want more and more and more. And even then when we were surfing down in Clare in the early days, all the slabs you just go around there, you know, four or five foot flat slabs, they're super heavy waves. They're like four foot high, but like six foot wide. And you get used to, you know, sometimes the best memory was that massive wave you caught or that big barrel you pull into that you didn't make. Um, the wipeout would be tense, you'd, you know, bounce off the reef. But as a body where you definitely learn how to fall correctly and how to, you know, move up. Um, so surfing wave like Mullock Moore is all about being able to um, survive the wipeout. Um, so what's it like? Um, like I'm not going to say I like it, but it, it's it's a part of the buzz. Getting a good wipeout and surviving it is is is, is part of the buzz. But then again, it's not not fun seeing your friends getting seriously injured and you know being in radical situations, but. And I know I'd like to know your opinion on this because like one philosophy I can come across and I'm really interested in is that human beings are not designed for peace and security. So like movies try to sell us this like, you know, white picket fence and you got your house insurance and your health insurance and you got mom and dad and three kids and secure future and put your feet up and have a glass of wine. Um, and how many people go crazy? How many people suffer from depression, anxiety and on medication in, in that situation, like, you know, humans, like, look at this guy, Ned Brockman. He, he just ran like 40 or a hundred kilometers a day for 500. Like humans are tough. You know, things I've seen people go through and I'm sure you've seen them endure and what mountaineers can endure uh, and thrive, you know, and you can break a leg and you can lose an arm and you can, we're so gnarly. Like we're so, we're such, we're built for adventure. We're built for like three days, no food. We're built and that stuff kind of gets us high and that gets us, I think the peace and security bit is a bit of, um, that's just people on the show and selling insurance and mortgages and stuff, you know? 
Yeah, it does. I don't think it does you much good. I mean, you know, I'm not a professional. I'm not qualified to comment on this, probably. But my opinion is that I don't know. This is a bit of a bold statement, but people think the meaning of life is happiness. I think the meaning of life is suffering. And you know, uh, people, I'm sure, come back to me and say, "Well, what about those who are ill or live in you know parts of the world where they have no money, no access to clean water?" I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this established kind of middle class Western life where everything is safe and secure. And actually, all of the anxieties we feel are around money and status, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is, you know, I, I have a, the sort of brain where I, my happiness um, fluctuates. Like the happiest times of my life outside of recently having kids have always been in stressful and difficult situations. I did an expedition to Greenland last summer. It was the hardest trip of my entire life. It physically broke me. I was having to take tramadol just to get through the days of carrying heavy bags because I accidentally tore a few ligaments and stuff like that, but I had to keep going. I got to the end of that trip and I thought, maybe I'm done with this. Like maybe I've actually grown out of this. And I was laying in a shitty airport like bed um, in Greenland. And I turned over to my friend and I just looked at him having said a few days before, I think I might be done actually um, move on to something else. I looked across at him and I said, if someone walked in that door right now and said, pack your bags, you're going back in for another six weeks, I'd just stand up, smile and go. Wow. And I don't know, it's a long-winded way of saying it, but maybe it's addiction. Maybe you're right, like positive addiction. But also I think that's where life has most of its meaning, again, outside of children. Um, for me, like life has its most meaning when I'm hanging out with talent. Well, can I can I I'm a little bit of a science there? I, I, there's two ways I could I totally agree with what you're saying. I could go down maybe like a spiritual route and talk about Zen and my, blah 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 blah. But I have a bit of a nerd, I'm a bit of a scientist, and I was talking with the woman recently, who's a psychologist, and you know we've all heard of fight or flight, but she explained it to me like this: like you know we have um, in our nervous system we have certain circuits which kick in, um, like maybe instincts or whatever. But like fight or flight is like DEFCON 5 that you have actually a couple of stages like in stress, as the stress goes up, you have like please and appease, which is just like you know, a couple of big guys come around, you don't want to beat you up, like, oh guys, you know, not me and smile your way out of it. And then if you can't run, you got to fight. And then it's like you're into like top level fight or flight. And then you go back down to rest and digest. And then there's other circuits, which are like shutdown circuits, which in a negative spot, when people like are super stressed and are super depressed, and they're in these like dark places and spires and stuff. They can go catatonic. You've ever heard of catatonia? Well, this is a circuit that we get stuck in. Or people are in high anxiety. They're all stuck in fight or flight. Um, so that's like you know, in the battlefield, like you know, a soldier's got their arm blown off and he's still running towards the enemies, like shooting whatever. Or when I broke my leg and I broke my femur when I was surfing rides, I didn't feel a thing. I was able to swim. Like this is what the body does. But the problem is when we get stuck in these things. So with adventure you're kind of going through them. Like, you know, you're resting, digesting, eating, and then you're up in the mountain, you're you're back up in your fight or flight, you're coming all, you know, it's a healthy mountain to climb each day. But imagine like all these people with no stresses in their life. And that's the kind of goal, like, you know, every stress and every strain of life and every, like everything's handed to you. It's all like smart houses and you don't run out of milk, you don't run out of sugar. And, you know, you're never in a fight or flight but then there's this interesting book on stress I, I, I was reading as well. I found it at a secondhand bookstore that talked about, you know, physically being in 
a stressful situation or mentally being in one and that physiologically there's not much you know what i'm talking about there's not much difference so the way this book described it was like a fireman or a firewoman or a fire person uh, may be in like a stressful situ- situation like running into a burning building but they're doing it every day so like basically their stress levels are like kind of normal doing something like that because they get you so used to it but let's say uh, a secretary which could be a man or woman as well let's not be sexist here um but let's say a secretary in a kind of an office but super stressful office and she's under like all these deadlines and pressures and so that her stress levels could be like equivalent to like a fireman you know um so we're not dealing with these well i would argue that, that but there's a big difference there and this is perceived this is my own subjective experience but i would argue that the fireman has more purpose the fire person has more purpose to their stress and i think that's the biggest difference is like what these adventurous pursuits give us is purpose to our stress you know thinking i need to do this so that my boss can do this so that they or can like you know and I, I totally see what you're saying but like the point i'm almost trying to make is if you take that secretary out and you bring up her mountain three times a week or, or him up like you know uh, and get those like you know they know what real freaking stress is you know when they're back and their gmail breaks down or they lose their phone and blah blah they're like you know whatever but the point is, like, you know, um, it's how we can get stuck. We don't know we have these all these circuits, um, maybe been in these like cities and, and shielding ourselves from the highs and lows. Or what am I trying to say? Like, um, you know, the the the, the fights is that we we, we kind of like, you know, when I go surfing, I'll get up and I'll check my emails and I'll do my work and I'll go and stand in line for my post office like a like a normal person. And then I'll go and get like held down and bash my head off the reef and kind of come up seeing stars and go. Gosh, I'm late for my three o'clock meeting and Zoom or whatever, and then I'll go back in. But you know, I just thought I was going to die. Or even when someone comes out for a surface with me, you know, they know they're safe. But once they get their first wipeout and they're washed around on their arse, hit the sand and can't breathe for five seconds, and they come up kind of, you know, they know they're not going to die. And I'm laughing at them afterwards. But like part of their like animal brain, whatever, is just like, holy shit, you just nearly died. And that, like, you know, and then it's the whole thing of, then you're kind of like, well, you know, there's a there's a saying. I don't know if it's a Zen saying or something, but you got to die before you die. Have you ever heard about that? No. Yeah, it's it's like a Buddhist thing or something like that, like where they're like, you have to in this life, you have to die before you die. And like, let's say some people who've had near death experiences or they've nearly died. I'm sure you could have tons of stories about that. You know, um, it's only after that you that you really live. You know, and then that's why in certain like societies and in certain secret societies. They'll bring you in to a certain point where they'll make you afraid of death and, and you 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 almost almost go through like a ritual, which is like your death. Um, so you'd be reborn. And I think that's um yeah, I'm into that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and you, it changes your perspective on everything, those experiences. If it, it that's a whole diff, deeper, bigger thing, but like if you experience those a lot you can then get used to those and that's really dangerous and I've definitely felt well, that. I'd love to go into I'm going to do, talk a bit of story with you as well. I'd love to hear, hear some of yours but I'd, to answer the question about how I do it nowadays, I'll go back into when I was 18 and have my first near-death experience. But one thing I've learned from surfing Moloch more basically recently and like how you do it, it's kind of not thinking. I don't mean that like in like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Like some people sometimes go to Moloch more and they shouldn't be out there and I think they're out there purely by the force of their ego. You know, fair play to anyone who tries it, but 
um, some sometimes I think sometimes people do it for the wrong reasons. No, sometimes the people the main reason they're doing it for is for the recognition or something like that. For example, this guy called Mo Rama came over to Mullachmore one time and he learned to surf in like a wave pool in like Saudi Arabia or some shit. He was like a billionaire. His dad owned like a bunch of oil rigs or something. And he came over to Mullachmore and, uh, you know, we had the safety talk. I, I don't think I was there. Well, no, I was there that day. We had this like safety talk beforehand, a briefing. And it was like, you know, everyone got their air canisters ready, all the jet skis, everyone's got the comms, walkie-talkies, everyone's like, yeah, yeah. Any questions? Mo Raman puts up his hand and says, is it a left or a right? And this is just before he went down. And like, he got towed into like one of the bombs. Like I was, I wanted to paddle that way, but he got towed into it. And like, I was like screaming at this guy, like you have just got the bomb. You're going to get so barreled. And he got half in the face and just like fell, just fell on his face and got sucked up and got like absolutely annihilated. So that, that was kind of funny. But, um, that's just like some of the craziness that, that goes on. But yeah, like, um, like before I even surfed Mullachmore and I've had a few intense wipeouts there, no doubt. Um, but actually I've relatively remained relatively safe there, although I've been relatively cautious because um, it's just a hectic environment and it's pretty scary. Um, but that's because like when I was 18, when I, I had my first near-death experience, I'd say when I was in my teens at Strand Hill, just you know, I surf on one day, conditions were pumping, maybe four foot. Um, the beach was kind of barreling, and then there was this like one sandbar that was just going crazy, it was just going like below sea level, it was just this crazy, like right shore break. And I paddled over to it and you know, kept paddling for these waves that were doubling up. And a wave which doubles up is kind of a wave that comes in, but it's got like another wave behind it. And as that wave breaks, the other wave kind of slams into it, and it's like a double wave. It's they're really good, powerful ones, usually. And then I couldn't get it, and I pulled back, but I got stuck in the lip. I got pitched from the flat, like top to bottom into the flats. And on impact, I think I lost all the air in my lungs. And then that hold down was probably the craziest hold down I'd had. I remember being pinned to the sand, even though the waves was quite shallow. And I remember kind of struggling, but then stopping the struggle and uh, kind of getting real tired and real like sleepy and stuff. And then like popping up and getting a breath and kind of getting washed in. I remember all my friends were just laughing at me lying the rocks and I, I had to paddle back out because that's a really important thing to kind of shake it off. And then the next really, really crazy one I can remember, but I do remember that time I got dropped off at, um, my dad dropped me off the peak. I remember like, you know, getting one of those wipeouts where you get like, uh, you get O2 deprivation, you start getting like, that you need to breathe, start getting the little um, spasms. Um, but you still got loads of oxygen in your blood and you're not going to drown for like another minute or so. So you kind of learn not to freak out when you get that one. And the thing about surviving any wipeout at all is to relax. And they, you hear that across the board and it's true. And that's because you don't need to be, it's not a sense of fitness or physical strength to relax. It's kind of a, a mental faculty, isn't it? 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But one of the really, really, really scariest moments of my life was in, uh, when I was 18 and I was in um, Ecuador in South America for the European Surfing Championships. I went to Ecuador um selena's this hotel and the beach break was called la fai f-a-e it was like um a military base and so they get special permission for the military to go there and you know ecuador had a lot of civil problems and it was like uh shaking on their president and stuff and the country's kind of in turmoil at the time and it's still it's still going to this day but um basically we got to the beach one day and it was like 10 foot like shore break the whole beach was closing out huge shore break there's only two like all the countries in the world were there only two people were out in the water two bodyboards one was nicholas captive from france and there was a guy from bode from australia and i remember watching and they were sitting out there and one of them took off in a wave and did a massive invert like huge like didn't even just pull the plug out. he actually went and launched an air which was just so radical the stuff i've seen in videos and seen in real life was really mad and then the guy nicholas captive did a big massive rollo and i was like well they're definitely going to call off the competition. It's too big to surf, you know? And my manager, Bernsey, walked up to me like an hour later. And he's like, Chambles, you're in the third heat, you know? I was like, fuck me. Like, they're going to actually run the competition. Like, this is hectic. But in my mind, I was like, well, like, the thing is, you should go out now and get some, I better paddle out and catch a couple waves and just get used to the conditions and try and do well in my heat. So I kind of nervously paddled out. And I was kind of sure I wouldn't get out anyways. But whatever happened, there's maybe a lull and I just got straight out. I just paddled out and I got straight out. So then I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm actually out here. And this is, I was 18. It was the first time I was ever in board shorts. And the water is like super warm. Um, but so now you don't have, you know, warmer water is less dense. You don't have the flotation from a wetsuit. You know, you kind of, when you're out of breath, you have that real stuffy feeling. Like, yeah, it was hectic. And I thought I was out as far as I needed to be for like to catch away or whatever. And like, this just sounds like a total cliche, but this is exactly what happened. Like, think about far enough, then all these big lines in the horizon. It was just like, had this whole sinking feeling. And it's kind of shit position to be in because you have to sprint, but you've also got to like, you got two options. You could just sit there and like breathe real slow and slow down your heart rate and take it like a rat or you can sprint and try and save your skin. But if that doesn't work out, then you're like, you're screwed because it's just like you've done a 50 meter dash and now you got to hold your breath. <laughs> it's like, if you ever try that, it's not easy. Um, so I sprinted, got over the first one, got over the second one, and then just the third one was just like, it just smashed me. Um, I swam under that one and snapped my leash and my, my people were watching the beaches on my body were like fluttering into the air so I come up from that one then I was swimming and then the next one hit me and then the next one hit me and the next one hit me 
And the first one was kind of fine. It was just like a bit like, you know, I was full of beans. I full, I took a breath of air. I got washed around. I came up and then the next one hit me and then same thing happened. You know, you're kind of a bit more out of breath. You're a bit like, and then you came up. But the problem was I was out quite far from the beach and the wave didn't just push me into the shore. The wave will push me in and then you're kind of have a lull. And then the next set will come in and you get sucked out in the current and you get bashed by those as well. So you're stuck in a kind of a washing machine cycle and you're getting more and more and more tired. Um, and like, even when you're treading water, you're kind of like, it's all foamy and it's hard to kind of stay afloat. So I was kind of swimming in and I was kind of having a hard time getting in. You know, I was like getting to the stage where like, even like a three foot wave hit me and I'd be like freaking out thinking I was going to drown under there. And it didn't just happen once. It happened like, you know, multiple times, about 30, 40 minutes trying to swim in. I remember just getting to the beach and just like kissing the sand and people were asking me if I was all right. You know, I was all right, I recovered, but um, that was hectic. Um, and I kind of would have fobbed it off and you kind of have a, a tendency to kind of go, ah, it wasn't that bad, it wasn't that serious. But what happened later that day was a, a wave came in and sucked. Some kids were like, the contest did get called off, but there's still this crowd and stuff. And then the wave came in and swept two, three young boys off the beach and two were drowned and one was rescued. And I looked at the beach, I saw this woman running past, screaming at this like ambulance and stuff. So that kind of like rattled my bones a little bit. And then like, obviously the competition was on the next day and all that. But um, that was, that was a pretty hectic situation. But every time you go through one of those hectic wipeouts, you kind of like almost a little lower hair in your chest and it, it adds in your little, your little notch of experience. Um, and uh, that was probably one of the worst ones. And that kind of gave me... I know maybe a bit of confidence and I can't remember the next time I would have had a really crazy, crazy wipeout. There's just so many times, um, but nothing, nothing that you can't handle and nothing that you can't after like five minutes kind of on the shoulder, kind of getting your breath back. Um, and a, a really important psychological thing is, is to go back and not to come in on that wipeout with your tail between your legs, but to go back out and get one more wave and kind of, you know, make it, make peace with the ocean. Like, I don't know if is, is that kind of same with like the sports you, you're doing? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it would get back on the horse, right? That's how it works. Yeah, it's super important because I've I've seen it happen. Some people like to get a big wipeout and really, really hectic, really nearly drown or whatever, and that's basically it. You you don't see them back again, you know. Yeah, I mean, you said you know you can't remember any other ones, or usually you just go out and get another one done, with the exception of snapping your femur. Yeah, I couldn't get that. Yeah, well, that was that was that was um, a hectic one. All right. Um, but um, before I had like, yeah, so when I broke my femur, I was kind of like up to that point. I kind of held my own with like Fergal Smith and Tom Lowe and Tom Gillespie and all these kind of crazy guys that I looked up, but, you know, and like guys like Dylan Scott and Barry would take me under the wing and Mullet Warren tow me in and rescue me and you know, but I always had this little nagging sense that like, you know, oh, I'm not charging as hard as Fergal or as like Connor or, you know, Tom or something like that. Um, you know, people say, oh, you're charging, you're doing well. But I, like in my mind, it's like, I knew I pulled back in that one and you pulled back in this one. But I also knew that I never got injured. You know, I'd never had a major injury. Um, so like Jerry Lopez has this thing, you know, he would live to surf another day you know, in terms of being crazy and psycho and going out and, you know, maybe if you've got sponsors, those cameras or, you know, people can get put in these situations. I don't know if you know, like maybe from 
you know, mountaineering or all the other sports when there's a lot of money involved and people say, I'm going to climb this crazy mountain and they got all this pressure on. That's when mistakes can happen. It's pretty, pretty sad. Does that happen? All the time. And as a, you know, I'm a professional filmmaker, right? I follow people around the world filming them and the pressure you feel to not affect their experience is massive. And that's something like, I now, you know, I usually work with people who are established athletes who are used to it, but also very regularly don't do that. And I give a different speech depending on who I'm talking to, like, do not let me affect your experience. Like there is no amount of money, no film that is worth. It's not just about your life, right? Like that's the extreme end, but also you're there to do what you're there to do. Like go and do it. We're, we're documentarians by trade, right? This isn't fiction, you know, let's, mm. let's document what happens, but it takes, it's easy to say it's hard to do. You know, if you fly, I'm also one of the craziest, craziest situations you've been in like that. Filming people soloing, rock climbing, where, I mean, we did, we did a job in the Middle East. Um, it was actually for PlayStation, sold our souls and did this job. And a really close friend, like world-class rock climber, was free soloing this insane route. Sandstone, it's loose. It's, I mean, sandy, it's not great grip. And I just remember dangling on a skinny rope you know, I can't touch the rock with my feet. There's just air below me, like 300 meters. And I'm just filming him thinking, I think I'm about to watch someone die, like through my camera. And I just thought like, how the fuck did we get into this situation where we're being like, we're not being paid, you know, we're not millionaires. We're just being paid to do our no, day jobs. No, no, no. To do, why, why are we doing this? But there's there's such wealth, there's such accumulated like social capital, like, you know, it'd be fair enough if he was getting a hundred million dollars to do it, but he might be getting a hundred bucks and a, and a peanut butter sandwich yeah. or something like that. But like in that climbing community, I know it well, like this prestige and the, like, I don't know as well. It'd be interesting to get a woman's perspective. Is it, is it a male kind of hierarchy kind of tribal thing? Is it a quite a, you know, cause well, it doesn't make sense because there's still um, communities of women that do exactly the same thing. So I'm trying to put my finger on what it is. There's a little bit of prestige. There's a little bit of, um, you don't need like a world governing body. It's all like, so much, like, I mean, you know, just to touch on the gender thing, like, of course it's a bell curve, right? Like there's crossover across the, the field, but I asked a really um, talented, like high profile female rock climber, world-class. Um, and she specializes in kind of the mental side of it and the psychological side of it. I said to her, why aren't more women taking big risks in the high mountains? And she said, that's the wrong question. The right question is why do men feel the need to? That's, mm. huh, that's clever. <laughs> um, I, oh, I must go back to like why your fucking ancestry DNA or something, is it? Like, yeah, I mean, what was her? Did she have? Did she have an answer for that? Well, I can't remember exactly what she said verbatim, and I, you know, I, I'll, I'll probably do a hatchet job of it. But um, I think, like, <laughs> for me, it comes back to something we talked about earlier. It's that that feeling of like, you know, acute stress is good for the body seeking something maybe i mean most polar most male polar explorers who i've interviewed have daddy issues right like there's we've all got reasons that we go out and do these things and i think feeling a bit purposeless or searching for something that isn't there anymore as part of our human condition is part of it and i personally you know email me if this makes you grumpy audience but i think fragile male ego leads people to do very silly things in adventurous environments sometimes yeah and I, 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 I'm, this is actually a really interesting argument but also I've been reading some books about the male ego I'm reading a book about the male ego and um, while that may be true 
uh, the male ego is under incredible attack in the modern world, you know, and, um, you know, but I, and I think there's that whole argument, maybe why do men take risks in the stock market or why do, you know, that that's a really, really interesting thing, but I, I also feel like what's driven me to risk, I, I don't think I'm risking my life, you know, um, <laughs> you know, I don't care about life after it. I'm, I'm worried about having a life before that, you know, I just want to live life. You know, but um, doing what I do, I feel like I'm part of something. And that something goes back to ancient Hawaii, ancient Polynesia, and it connects me to those kind of people. And, you know, when I was reading those magazines and reading those great stories, um, I was like, oh, I want to be a part of that. And then you become a part of it by adding your little piece to that tradition. And I, I like to look at it that way, too. But I'm not not discounting. There's there's definitely that those daddy issues or whatever you want to be adored and all that and musicians and all that kind of, kind of stuff, you know. That might be part of the tribal thing. Like you found a tribe, right? To use the cliche, yeah. you know, I found a tribe. I didn't have one when I was a kid. And there's yeah. this amazing book. If you're interested in this sort of thing, which you clearly are, there's a book called um, Tribe, <laughs> hilariously, by Sebastian Younger, the journalist. He used to be a war correspondent, and basically the premise. Um, is why do young men miss war? But it's so much more than that. It's not, that's like the the, the coat hanger for the whole thing. Um, and I just, there's two things I remember from it really clearly. And I've read that book more than any other and I recommend it more than any other. One thing is wow. he says, humans need three things to be happy. They need to feel competent at what they do, respected by their peers and authentic in the way they live their lives. I cannot argue with that. That's interesting about because the gender thing as well, um, like surfing and bodyboarding. Uh, surfing is a very gender balanced sport. The World Surf League are the first sports league in history to offer, you know, equal prize money. You know, you got little girls like Erin Brooks. Have you seen this little girl on um, Instagram? Maybe not. No. Yeah, well, like you know, I, obviously the algorithm suggested I check out this girl, Erin Brooks, and it's like this fifteen year old girl from Texas who's just like ripping, like. Like from her gram, like she's doing all these airs and she's doing like charging and she's just this little blonde haired kid, like, and it's just so cool to see, you know. Um, and I just, I wonder, I think it, there's a, there is barriers for males and females entering sport in general. Um, and I just think it's so important. I think guys have done a lot for themselves and then the big way stuff and so on. Um, I just think it, one of the big things that's going to happen in all those sports is the women basically to step up the game and overcome whatever barriers they have in, in the business and the sport. And like, you know, I'd imagine like a rock climbing, like, you know, a, a, a leaner, slimmer frame with more muscle per weight. I mean, I'd say wouldn't, would not even give them advantage. Well, it's really interesting. You talk about, you know, you can talk about psychology and mental strength versus physical strength and natural prowess. Like, Climbing is one of those great equal sports where actually because it tends to be that light is best, um, men or women, you know, climbers are naturally quite slight people. There's very rare mm -hmm. that you get a super jacked climber unless there's some indoor, you know, Instagram junkie. Um, yeah. But the, the difference between male and female skill and competence at the elite level is fractional, is tiny. Um, and it's, I think it's just, I probably like surfing is, I don't know if surfing's quite there and bodyboarding, but maybe it is, 
but the gap between male and female skill at the elite level is tiny now. Well, the way I look at it, like the, the gap between male and females, I don't know how you, they're, they're, um, the things that female bodyboarders are doing, like it's pushing female surfing like hugely. And I think, um, see, bodyboarding need, need a lot of growth. Um, we we're talking a little bit earlier about like competitions and, you know, I don't know, like, I don't know your, your whole history, but like you see maybe like me, I did shy away a little bit. I was happy to go with the underground, you know, wasn't doing it for the Instagram or it was on Instagram when we started and bodyboarding is kind of like a bit underground. But um, I think it needs development and professional sport is a way to to do it. Um, and one of the biggest assets of the sport is is our female athletes. Um, so it's just, yeah, there, there's definitely a few barriers to overcome there in bodyboarding. Um, but, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're you know, it, it's, bodyboarding's kind of gone through a little bit of a phase, even just the last couple of years, the world tour fell apart and stuff like that. But, um, it's like the cockroach, it'll never die. You know, it's like after nuclear blast, like bodyboarders will crawl out from under the rocks. It'll never, you know, and it doesn't re like, it would be great to get all that recognition and money in the sport and development, but like, it doesn't need it either. It, it doesn't want, like, it's pretty, pretty happy the way it is too. You yeah. Know? No, and it leads me nicely onto something I really wanted to talk to you about, which is this kind of like, well, there's two sides to it. One is the kind of locals only mentality. And is that a thing? And does it happen? And also, you know, surfing and climbing are similar in that there is only a finite amount of space available to do this stuff, especially with... And an increasing amount of participants. Yeah. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? And how are we going to combat that as it grows? Yeah, look, that, no, that's that's a fair point. Um, probably something we'll find a bit more difficult to talk about, especially on a podcast on that. Um, but but um, you know, because we kind of tend, even as a surf school owner, uh, and I would see myself running a tourism business, and I'm all about promoting Sligo in the northwest and surfing, and you know, it's like, so some poor guy comes to my surf school, some poor lady, and they get a couple of lessons, like oh sweet, and then the rent a board and the paddle out to the peak and then it's just turn around. What the fuck are you doing here? Get the fuck out of here. You can't be out here. And um I find it difficult to talk about because I feel like I'm in a bit of a contradictory situation. Uh and first of all, I've always kind of tried to avoid conflict. Maybe it's in my nature, maybe it's daddy issues, but I've just never been in a fight or I've never been and this locals only thing, it's like See, I'm a bodyboarder, so I come from a bodyboarder culture, and there's never this thing like bodyboarders are better than surfers or surfers are better than bodyboarders. We want, want fucking respect. We want, like, no one's, no one's better than anyone else here, you know? Um, even down to the, like, non culture of the bloody sport, like, bodyboarding is surfing, like. So you, you're not a bodyboarder. If you're on a board moving on a wave, you're a surfer, you know? Um, and it's just, it's great to see things diversifying a bit more. Um, for example, you had the Gomau class, which is this amazing competition in Lanzarote, but it's a kind of a hand-picked selection of, you know, specialists on this wave in, in Lanzarote. And they have a surfing event, they have a bodyboarding event, and then, like, they, they run them, like, back-to-back, side-by-side, and, you know, everyone, we love it. Like, it's such a, such a cool camaraderie. So locals only. Yeah, it's locals only. That's surfing. <laughs> That's the rule. You know what I mean? And, like... You think like, oh, like who's this dick? Or you know, it's like that goes way back. You know, it's a real tribal thing. Um, kind of like martial arts. It's kind of like there's just just these kind of rules. I don't know if they're exactly the same for every single discipline. But there's rules, there's rules, there's rules. Um, 
know, then there's things like Grom abuse, and I think that's bad. They're bad for like Australian stuff, and I don't know about that, you know, but it's it was definitely part of it. There's no surf schools when I started up, and you had to fight to get your your spot, and it wasn't like surfing wasn't this like welcome, open arms. You know, we hated the Stormwater Guide. We hated Magic Sea when it started. We hated any, you know, there's this, the worst thing I think is is, is, is this kind of contradiction between pro surfers or pro climbers. Anyone who can make, make a living out of their passion is great, but then they have to blow up this wall, they have to blow up this spot. And it's a bit like, don't destroy what you came to enjoy. And then there's this idea of paradise lost. So like, you know, when surfing was discovered in the 60s, you can imagine how paradise it was and, even though they didn't have the best equipment and, you know, they're all fucking smoking weed and they're off surfing and dropping out of society. And the part of the counterculture, like surfing really had a big subtle effect on the hippie counterculture. Um, but then more and more people got involved, more and more people got involved. And um, eventually it's called a kind of paradise lost. And like, you know, my local beach is pretty crowded. Um, we're mainly with beginners and intermediates, mainly with people who aren't from Shanghill. Um, if the waves are under two feet, I, I always joke and laugh and I'm not really into it. But my attitude to all that goes back to surfing with Jack Johns, Dan Skoreski, Tom, Finty Gillespie, Mickey. You know, locals only. No one had surfed this way before. Locals only. Like a guy from flipping Land's End in Cornwall is the local. You know, um, the rules didn't apply and we didn't want to like, you know, a lot of that comes from the 80s and a lot of that comes from real toxic 80s masculinity when like, I can only speak for surfing. Let's say the surfing population wasn't filled with all these adventure athletes doing yoga and fucking wanting to drink energy drinks. It was like dropouts and tough guys who were no good at any other sport who never traveled and, you know, were irate and, and maybe there was just this bad attitude and the sport I got involved in kind of didn't have any of that. Didn't have any of that. I grew up, my I was just like smiles and welcomes. And when I traveled to a competition for another thing and you couldn't get a wave, I was like, fuck, fuck living here. <laughs> I don't want to do this. Um, but then again, you know, locals only is, is the rule. Uh, you respect the locals. Um, you know, in a beach break, maybe what maybe a lot of the listeners could relate to. If you got like a local beach, um, you know, if some guys out there or some girls out there who doesn't know what he or she is doing, and they're like, maybe catch a wave, and they're out, and they're stoked because they're catching wave, but they're out of control and they're going to run someone over, or they have run someone over. You know, it's actually only polite. It's only right for a local person and more advanced, more experienced person to pal over that person and go, hey, listen, like, you know what you should do? You should probably just go over to this side of the beach or you shouldn't have done that for this reason. And you got to learn because what's going to happen is a lot of people come through the surf schools and they're, not, they're learning to surf but they're not learning the rules. And um, they're kind of like, oh my God, why are these people so irate? So you just got to have like, almost look at like a martial art too. And like the more respect you show, the more respect you, you're given. But a lot of it, I don't have an answer for Matt because it's like, you know, with growing surfing populations and limited surfing resources, like it's got to really bad levels in other places. Um, and um, in Ireland, you know, we have promoted ourselves. Um, there's been a couple of people who've made a living from it, but like, you know, a lot of the UK surf industry, a lot of the French surfing industry, as well as other, like other countries, would have relied on Ireland for content 
And uh, we used to hear this thing from the mid 90s on, like, you know, Ireland's perfect ways and there's no crowds. And it's so constantly repeated and it's repeated to this day. It's like someone comes over, oh, it was great, perfect ways, no crowds. That's what you get. The ways aren't perfect and it's actually pretty crowded. Um, you know, but if I pal at, at, a, at a spot, you know, I'm not going to sit at the back of the line. With, you know, and wait for for my turn like everyone else. It's like you know, where were you guys when I was surfing here on my own when I was 15? You know, so that I I would paddle to the top of the line, you know, and then I know if I was a big you know gorilla type of dude and just wanted to like I could just paddle around and catch every single wave, and if someone complained about it, you just paddle over and you punch them in the face. You know, you could do that if you wanted to, but you know. The, I've kind of taken a bit of attack. First of all, it's not about being a good surfer, it's about being a good person. Like I caught loads of good ways of spots. So sometimes it's a thrill to kind of like, you know, you see a woman there who's a little bit nervous and go, go, you shatter, go, go, go. Maybe you could have caught that wave, but it's like giving it, like, you know, that's, you know, I used to look at Mickey Smith and he was discovering these ways. And he was an amazing bodyboarder. But when the surf turned on, you know, he was happy to sit in the channel and just watch and 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 share and just, you know, see other people enjoying his his discoveries. So, you know, there's a there's an element of it which is like you know, locals only respect the rules, um, know your place. You know, um, there's an element in terms of water safety as well, um, but there's another element of it which I've noticed as well, which is like. Some of the pros can be like that, especially the, the small wave guys, competition guys, but like other surfers have such big hearts, you know? Like I know Will Scudden, like for example, like this, you know, he looks a big, big kind of, not scary dude, but he's a big kind of jock dude. And, but he's the nicest guy. Like, you know, he's just like, cause you can see in his eyes, he's scored like the fucking best ways at Hawaii and all that. He's a uh, New York dude who comes over and starts up, but he's just so nice. And like, we, we get really lucky that all the surfers come over. They're not like the guys are going off to Hawaii for the winter or like, California, Australia, Gold Coast, they, they're, they're off the beaten track. They're different types of pros. And uh, like, let's say like Mickey Smith and, and, and the people like him have left a big mark where it's like, look, I'm not going to go down that route of, you know, shouting at people and punching people or writing people off online. Um, I'm just going to kind of smile and like live and let live. And if I miss a couple of good waves, that's fine. But that's not to say like inside, I'm kind of going, that guy's a dick or like, that was my wave or, you know, actually I think famously in Ireland we're a little bit too polite and a little bit, bit quite civil um, because we've dealt a lot with, with, you know, other surfing interests coming to not, not like exploit, but to use it for, not for the advantage of like the local, local guys uh, who would have done just as well if there'd be no photos, no videos and all that kind of stuff. But then again, you know, I get free wetsuits, I get like my boards, I get, you know, I get put out clips and stuff like that. So, it's kind of don't want to be called like bullshit on it. Um, but definitely, and especially surf, the surf school really straightened me out too, because when I started the surf school before that, to be honest, um, I was kind of like surf schools that equals like beginner surfers, beginner, beginner surfers or kooks. What do I want to do? Be hanging out with kooks. I was very focused on bodyboarding, but then as I got into it and I really, was it first of all I was like fuck I'm actually really good like I love buzzing with people in the water and, and introducing to their first waves and you know I was good at it and then I was like whoa you know there's so much stuff going on, on this planet there's so much misery and there's so much 
you know, we could go on about challenges and stuff like that. And that surfing is actually a really positive thing at this time. And for surfing as a community to, to keep it to themselves is kind of selfish. Um, but then again, most of the people who will try surfing, you know, they kind of think like, or even the moms and dads that come to me, like, it's not like piano lessons or violin. You can't do grades. You can't like, to actually become a surfer is like, and I don't know how you maybe have some stories about this yourself, but like, it's, it goes back to that quote, like, you don't know you're part of it until it's too late to leave, you know? And that's, I, I was just so, I just like, you know, maybe it was youthful um, self-esteem issues or self-confidence issues or too many spots or something. But I just wanted to be a surfer and be cool and be that and other. And then, you know, you kind of get into it, you know, and um, it sounds pretty shallow, but it's been probably been not as superficial as that, but kind of is as well. But now that you are, is it everything you'd hoped it would be? Yeah, yeah, I'll say that. Like, I'll say that in a kind of a, just for the simple answer. And like, you know, I don't know what all that is, but um, definitely when you grow, you grow and you, you you change. And doing the surf school for a few years, like I'm not married, I don't have children. Um, and congratulations, I heard you just recently become a father. But, um, you know, I can definitely see from my surf school and from my beach and seeing people who've moved here and people who are from here have children you know, do the whole surfing, the whole full circle thing. Um, we're working here in Stranhill now. We have a new surfing center of excellence being built. I'm going to work a lot closely with the local surf club. And, you know, I love teaching. I really, really love most, mostly what I love to do is introduce surfing to complete, complete beginners, especially people who don't think they're going to be good at it or people think they're too big or too small or et cetera. I, that's what I really like. But the other end of it then is the high level, like, you know, coaching the next Garage McDade or the next Conor McGuire, the next Shambles McGoldrick for that matter. Um, and I'd be really into into that. And at this stage, it's kind of about giving back. And then, you know, there's other people like Tom Lowe. I've talked to like um, people who, who've, you know, were basically were psychopaths <laughs> when they were younger. And, uh, but they're stepped back a little bit now, just like a, a tiny bit. And I'm like, even, I need to put a bit more into my preparation, I'm a bit more long. I can sense myself, my injuries and, like, you know, I still like, I like to surf, but you just, you have to kind of mature and maybe not go in every single wave or every single swell. And that comes with a little bit of thing. Or like, you know, yeah, seeing that next crew come through. That's the big change for me now is to kind of settle back into like promoting the sport and putting back into the sport as best as I can. I'm really lucky I'm in a position I can kind of do that. And even these podcasts, man, this is really, really helpful um for me you know i'm really stoked to like to even have the opportunity it's kind of like is, is it a bit pinch me um but from my perspective it's so natural it's just been the most natural thing in the world because maybe i was dedicated to it but i was addicted to it anyways and like you know growing up at the beach and getting involved in bodyboarding and meeting this person meeting that person and just drive up the coast everything seemed to lead up lead on to everything else so in that sense i don't think i've made it in any sense but I've definitely been charmed and I'm, I'm definitely like pinch me sometimes. And I definitely do like to talk about it. It does give me like a smile just to, to kind of, you know, uh, and it, it is everything. It is people that like, please don't like, you know, like my life's not perfect. It hasn't all been rosy, etc. But, and as cliche as it is though, but you know, anything, everything I've been through, um, the ocean has been a great um, healer essentially. And I think everyone, everyone knows that. And like a mountain is the same thing. 
Cliff is the same thing. Forrest is the same thing. You know. Well, last. This is my last question, right? Because we. I think I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I go go check your film. <laughs> but why? Why is it such a great healer? Like, what is it for you that does it? Um. Okay, I'll try and answer that question. Um, first of all, like the ocean is like a huge reservoir of mana. You know, uh, the Hawaiians would call mana. Um, you get it around forests as well. So forests have a lot of this like chi or life energy, um, which is kind of a metaphysical concept, but I'm sure there's loads of like scientific reasons. Like, you know, um, a forest release loads of... Um, Lip, I can't remember what the chemicals names on linoleum, linoleum, like basically the, the trees give out chemicals, um, aerosols. Like an oak tree can actually spread like hundreds of gallons of water in a day, in a hot day, to keep itself and all the plants around it moist. Uh, they work together. There's the the fun mitochondrial network, like the wood wide web, basically. And like it's not like a if you see a plantation of Sicka spruce firs, like they're all native, they're all pesticides. You go in there, there's science. It's, it's like a one man band. Whereas a forest is like a symphony, you know, m- multiple layers of life. Um, but forests are intimately connected with the oceans, and they're actually in a balance. So you, no, no ocean, no forest, no forest, no ocean. So, um, or if you go up to a top of the peak, it's just got this certain energy which fills up the human soul and. Um, that's what the ocean is at a very, very, very basic level. Now, there's also reasons why if you take off your socks and shoes and you walk on grass or if you walk on dirt or sand, you will electrostatically grind yourself. Because if you're walking around in an office on carpet and in rubber sole shoes, you're going to collect a lot of positive ions in your blood. You're going to lose a lot of free electrons. And that will cause you to get more acidic and chemical, you know, whatever, colicky kind of behavior, or, you know, repeating stomach or something. But if you go and walking sand, walking dirt, walking grass, or go for swimming the ocean, you will be electrostatically uh, different. You know, never mind any kind of metaphysical uh, arguments you can make. And then also, East Britain talks a lot about this. When we go into the ocean, we go into our blue mind. When we go into our forest, we go into our green mind. Uh, and I can't really define those terms, but, you know, this isn't, that's, it's basically a scientific that we should have more green and blue spaces in society to basically go and chill out in. And um, that allows us to get away from the screens and just, just kind of reset, like, you know, who doesn't feel better after, after a surf and that kind of thing. Um, so that's what I think. And then, you know, the big wave surfing, is just, there's less crowds and there's just, it's that feeling kind of amplified a wee bit. Um, and I always find big wave surfing is quite efficient. Like I go and surf more, like more, let's say for one day and I don't have to surf for another month after that. Cause I'm just buzzing on that one session. So, um, yeah, and then I think as well, from what I've seen as a surf school owner, I love bringing people in for the first time because they may never surf again, they may never become a proper surfer, but they'll always become an advocate of the surfing and of the ocean. And, uh, you know, look, we could have spent a lot, a lot more time talking about ocean plastic and ocean pollution and all sorts of, you know, environmental things that we're not taking care of. Um, and I think that, makes people more of an advocate for that kind of thing because they see it like as a resource and somewhere to somewhere to play. So um and surfers are kind of coastal guardians as well. We kind of form a little, you know, a little thing, you know, and um I'm sipping a bit more of that. I'm inspired by my friend like Fergal Smith, like, you know, other people 
who are like planting forests and living off the land and, you know, won't fly and stuff like that. Like, you know, I'm not any way like an environmentalist like that, but I definitely do get involved in King Coast, trying to pick up a bit of rubbish and just start to get on this bandwagon and start to repeat this mantra. Um, so yeah. And I, I look with crowds and all that, I think you have to basically just give it up. It's, it's kind of inevitable and, you know, we have to be afraid of, mindful over exploitation of any industry like surf snow skate whatever safety is important but um you know if you look at the bigger picture well, what's going on just you know i think the more people get involved in those things the better bottom line and there's some some doofuses that go in for the wrong reasons and real materialistic and superficial so be it like you know you always get that with everything so i think it's i think it's and i think like you know you might have a company like patagonia quicksilver some bodyboard brands like COVID and stuff of like that has had, um, I think we're on a, a path of growth, you know, which is, which is going to be good. Yeah, I agree. So I end every conversation by asking people the same two questions. Um, the first one is what scares you? Yeah. Um, so can I, two things in that one that's come to mind. So two things, and, and I won't even, I won't even explain. I'll leave, leave you and your figures listening because I'm still trying to work something out. What scares me? Two things scare me. A crazy wave of Mullockmore and not catching a crazy wave of Mullockmore. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I want it, but I don't want it. And I don't know what to do, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah. What brings you hope? What brings me hope? Uh, surfing. Surfing. Um, I'm a I'm a hopeful person. I'm kind of a, I think I wouldn't say but yeah, I'm an optimistic person. I've chose to be an optimistic person. Um, so I'm kind of would naturally be kind of like glass is half full because what's the alternative? Um, that might be a bit naive. Um, like in terms of political situation right now, in terms of the financial world, in terms of the military world, I have very very little hope for real change. Um, I think there is a certain power structure in the world. It's been around for a very, very long time, maybe as far back as ancient Egypt, to be honest. Um, don't see hope in that. But surfing, I think there's a lot of movements that, that are kind of um, doing a lot of the right things. And I'm not saying surfers are perfect, but they just seem to, because it connects back to like an earlier type of community, the ocean community, the, the sailing community, the exploring community. Um as much as it's all Red Bull and like energy drinks and cheap highs and like dopamine hits on Instagram and all that, that's still only like an early, we will we'll get through that phase of the next phase. Um, the fact that it's all a kind of a brother and sisterhood pulling together and that we'd have this one, we can all travel and we can all talk to each other. And it's all, it's fairly racist free. It's fairly sexist free. It's fairly prejudice free. And um, they've got their head screwed on about the environment that gives me a lot of hope because it's so well connected. And even if the internet went down tomorrow and this podcast couldn't go out, it was still nice to meet and chat. Yeah. And I think like people will always be telling these kind of stories and connecting over, you know, an adventure or two, you know? Yeah. Amazing. Thank you very much. No worries, man. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the adventure podcast.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're immensely helpful and help us to reach a wider audience.